It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic today on the show. Danny LaRue is back in the building, and if Danny is here... You know what time it is. It's time to break down off-season moves. Danny, how you doing? Doing well, sir. I missed I missed you at Summer League, but I know there are large there are larger forces at work here, and um, I'm still working on my thoughts on those players. But the teams we're going to talk about, a lot of them did some stuff here. Our, uh, our our beautiful, beautiful moments together at Summer League just didn't get to happen this year because Australia is shut down from the rest of the world, but I am excited to get back you, to You will be League excited to know that they did still play Trap Queen at Summer League. Not as oh. many times as I would like, but still a few times. It is a tradition unlike any other. Uh, Fetty Wap will live forever, if only due to the royalties he gets from the Las Vegas Summer League every year. Okay, we're going to do the Southwest Division here. So Danny is on, and we are going to do uh, one division per day. Danny and I are not. I'm going to have different guests. But the the plan for the podcast over the next three weeks is two podcasts per week, one division per podcast. So today, Danny and I are doing the Southwest Division, which means we'll talk about Dallas, Houston, Memphis, New Orleans, and San Antonio, and all of the moves they made this offseason, kind of talk about did they get better, did they get worse, everything along those lines. Uh, Danny and I will also be doing the Southeast Division, and I have a few other guests lined up already uh, to do a few other divisions. So, uh, Part of the reason I'm, I'm kind of banking these this week as well when the Southwest Division will be released because I'm actually on vacation each of the next two weeks. So it kind of made sense now that it seems like the offseason has slowed down a bit now that it seems like we're in a pretty good place to you know, kind of discuss the full picture of these offseason moves to be able to have some guests on and discuss them uh, instead of just doing move by move. If you want that, you should listen to Danny and Nate's podcast, uh, Dunked On, because they do that every single day and it is fantastic. Well, thank you for that. Um, we could start We could start with the Mavericks, and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts here because I, I'll start with this one idea. I mean, Luca's well, extension is the most important thing. Yeah, let, let me uh, – so, so the way we're going to start this is sure. I'm going to list off just all of the moves that they did. And obviously we'll talk about Luca's extension at the start, but I just want to give the full context of sure. what Dallas did this offseason. So 
Dallas signed Luka Doncic to the five-year $207 million max extension. They traded Josh Richardson into Boston's uh, remaining Gordon Hayward trade exception. Uh, They acquired Moses Brown in that uh how how did they get Moses Brown was it like in it, it the- was it was it was a trade so basically they they traded Josh Richardson to yeah. Boston and Boston had Moses Brown because of the Horford Kemba deal yeah just moved him more. yeah like kind of in a separate transaction that was also filtered within the same transaction kind of deal yeah. uh re-signed Tim Hardaway to a four-year 74 million dollar deal signed Reggie Bullock to a three-year 30 point five million dollar deal that i believe has a team option on the end of it or no it's a non is it a partial guarantee it's a half guarantee yeah yeah uh signed sterling brown to a two-year six million dollar deal exercised the team option on willie Colley sign for four million dollars and then they re-signed boban to a two-year seven million dollar deal which i believe was the max he could get under his early bird rights correct no he could have gotten more but um, like theoretically, Boban was eligible for what Reggie Jackson got, but mm, Boban okay. should not have should not have gotten what Reggie Jackson got. So this is a totally reasonable contract, right? I will say this too before we get started on Dallas: the fact that they exercised that team extension or that team option on Willie Cauley Stein does make me wonder if they will consider something like Dwight Powell and Moses Brown for uh, Goran Dragic, which works mathematically, I believe. Yeah, I wonder. It's it sounds like. Toronto intends to keep Goran Dragic for now. That can always change. To, I mean, Powell has connections to Canada, obviously, being Canadian and all. Yeah. Um, but what I think is is interesting when you kind of put all those moves together is that whether Dallas, like, I think whether they got better or worse, I think it's pretty dang close to neutral. I mean, they lost Josh Richardson. They brought back Reggie Bullock on very different contracts, but they brought, yeah. brought him back. They brought back a lot of the same guys. Sterling Brown is more of a kind of peripheral option, though he's an interesting one. I think that he's gotten a rough go of it the last couple of years. So it was more basically just a continuation. And continuation is both not the worst thing in the world for Dallas, but also far from the best thing. Because, I mean, my goal for Dallas going into, I mean, you could even say going into the 2020 offseason, was to get somebody who could be either the second or third best player on their team moving forward. And... I don't think I, I don't think they did that. I mean, I think Hardaway Jr. is going to be in that conversation for their third best player, but the goal was to get somebody better than him. And I'm not. There's only one player that I'm going to like be banging the drum saying they made a mistake not getting him. It's more a reminder of how hard it is to acquire those players. Yeah, I mean, what you're going to say they should have tried to get Kyle Lowry, Dinwiddie. No, Lowry. Yeah. I think I think I think they tried to get Lowry, and he just chose someone else like but Dinwiddie like they had the capacity to make an offer as as good or better than Washington and who knows maybe Spencer wanted to go to Washington he was intrigued by what they're doing but like I think he is a better basketball player personally than Tim Hardaway Jr. and yes there is an injury concern absolutely but Dinwiddie I I think he can play and I I think that is an important thing it might have been possible to keep both I don't think so um, but so that that's the kind of the the well, they, sliding they probably, door that I miss. They probably could have done something like Dwight Powell in a sign and trade. Couldn't yeah, they? I mean, they would have probably had to send Dwight to a third team because I don't think the Nets are taking on that money. But yeah. they could have. I mean, I mean, the Nets played ball and getting him out of the conference, I think, would have been would have been worthwhile. There, there are ways like 
theoretically. But I mean, Dinwiddie, he got a very reasonable salary. We'll talk like we'll talk about that at a different point. And but again, the, for me, the biggest thing with the Mavs is just that it's a reminder of how hard it is to get those type of guys. Like they could have cleared that cap space, but they probably would have lost Hardaway Jr. in that process. And there were only a few guys, and I mean, yeah, I mean, if Mike Conley was willing to take the same money somewhere else, then I think I, I think Conley's a really good player too, but I don't think he was. I, I think that Conley wanted to go back to Utah. He probably gave them yeah. a little bit of a discount so he could stay, and I don't even know if he would have been as good a situation as Dallas has. I don't know that he was particularly interested. Yeah, and I think that in the same vein of what you're talking about, this kind of goes to show just how much luck plays a factor in a lot of this too, right? Sure. Because Dallas is in a position now with Luka Doncic where they just have to extend him, period, point blank. And that means that they are probably not going to have much cap space going forward just because of the fact they have Luka and they have Kristaps Porzingis under contract. Now, they if they move Kristaps for like expiring deals, which I don't know that there would have been much of a market for this offseason, given how Kristaps finished this past season and the concerns over his game going forward. They could find a way to do that, but this was really their main offseason over the next couple years to be able to clear max cap space. And this was just a shitty offseason in terms of difference-making free agents. Like, let's just call it what it was, right? There was Kyle Lowry, who we think Dallas couldn't get. There was Mike Conley, who we think Dallas couldn't get. There was Spencer Dinwiddie, who you and I are both higher on. I will say, like, you talk to scouts around the league, there is more concern about Spencer than what you and I have uh, in regard to that. Like, they're just not quite as high on him. So, like, yeah, I agree with you that generally, like, this was the offseason that Dallas needed to take advantage of in order to get better. But I just don't know that they could. Like, I don't think the options were truly there on the table for them outside of Dinwiddie. Well, and that's here's, hard. Here's that's the hard. other here's the other mistake they made. And I I think Dallas is the only team I can hammer for in, in this podcast. But I think that a lot of teams, most notably for me, the Lakers, made a big mistake not trading for Dinwiddie's rights last yeah. year. Yeah. Because basically, if you had traded for Dinwiddie, would have had full bird rights, could have done that. And so theoretically, had Dallas traded for Dinwiddie, somebody who I don't think, I think Brooklyn would have done that for a modest price. Considering, And, and by the way, think, like Dwight Powell probably could have helped Brooklyn last year. Sure. I mean, it could, it could have been, you know, like matching expiring salary and a pick or something. You know, I don't think, right. I don't think they were asking for much. Dinwiddie, remember, didn't play. So it's not like they were sacrificing. I mean, anybody, anybody would have helped last year more than he did because he was hurt. And so for me, that was the opportunity that was missed by the Lakers and the Mavericks and a few other teams is like, you just have him. So theoretically, in that circumstance, Dallas has Dinwiddie in the fold. They have his full word rights. Then there's no question that they can keep Hardaway Jr. and retain Dinwiddie, and then they theoretically could have could have gone in in other directions. And so I think like then they theoretically, if they wanted to, they could have kept Josh Richardson. And so like all you could do all of those things, and nothing would have been exploited. Maybe you include Richardson in the Dinwiddie trade anyway. And so I, I think that that is the like for a couple of teams like the the mistake was not this offseason. This it was just kind of betting on this offseason or or something in that vein. And so. Yeah, I don't think Dallas did a. I don't think they did a great job, but I also don't think the biggest mistakes they made were now. And like Reggie Bullock for the, he got basically the non-taxpayer mid-level, reasonable but not amazing. But I also again like if would I have rather had Nikola Batum? Yeah, probably. 
But was Nikola Batum interested in that, or was he wanting to go back to the Clippers? I'm guessing he wanted to go back to the Clippers. So I'm I'm not going to cry over the spilt milk that was players who might not have been interested. It's a good question. Would I rather have Batum or Bullock? I might go the other way on that. I might rather have Bullock at this deal than having Nikola Batum for three years, $30 million, just given where Batum is in terms of age. Batum was better than Bullock last year. But I kind of think that... So they've been trying to get this 3 and D guy next to Luka who can guard ones and twos and threes, right? And essentially just take all of the defensive burden off of Doncic totally. Bullock is a perfect fit for that. Like, he's a better shooter than what Josh Richardson was last year. And he's essentially like the same kind of player, just a better shooter and therefore fits their mold a little bit more in terms of the way their offense operates. Yeah, that's fair. Um I- Part of it for me is the idea that with Batum, you can go after a different defensive concept. I thought he actually worked well yeah. at the small ball five. And so it's harder, it, in many ways, it's harder to find those guys, as hard as it is to find the three D wings. And, and Bullock, he's more like, I think he's more of a fit within a scheme rather than a like central part of the defense, which is fine. Yeah. I mean, you need, play, no, you need players that. like that too. And, and so, I, yeah, it's again, but a totally reasonable contract. And opting in Kali Stein was intriguing. Um, I, th- I think that, you know, it's, Far from horrendous, but like I think that was an indicator that the new front office for the Mavs didn't really think they were going to do a ton with their cap space. And also, like you can move off a four million dollar contract. Let's say Kyle Lowry says yes, and that four million is an impediment. No big whoop. You can move that if yep. they needed to. No, I, I agree with that. Uh, the final thing that we should just talk about is getting Luka Doncic under contract long term. I do believe they had to give him a player option uh, on that final year so he is a Dallas Maverick for five more years not necessarily six more years I mean we're at the point now where Luka Doncic is one of the five six best players in the NBA and for as long as they have him Dallas is going to contend and at this point they're now contending within a five-year window it feels like yeah I am generally dubious of giving full max extensions especially the player option to most players Luka Doncic is not one of those players. If you have the opportunity to secure his services, you take the opportunity to, to secure his services. So I'm I'm totally on board. I mean, Luka is the type of player that the desig- the Rose Rule exists for, and he's the type of player that you make that offer. Now, I've been... And some of the times I've said the team shouldn't do that sort of an offer, I've been wrong. Like, I think that it worked out fine for the Kings with Boogie Cousins and numerous other ones that I thought weren't clear. Like, if they're not a clear max guy, don't fire away early. But... Luca, I mean, he's no hesitation. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, the final question I'm just going to ask here on all these teams is, did Dallas get better or worse? It feels like you think that they're somewhere in the middle, like they just kind of stayed stagnant. I think they got marginally better. Um, partially also, like, I mean, in terms of talent, I think they got a little bit better, but I'm hopeful that the kind of the injury odds shift a little bit better in their favor, and so that would make them a materially better team. Of course, they also, in my opinion, significantly downgrade their coach, so that's yeah. that's a different part of this equation. Yeah, no, I agree with that, too. Uh, I would say they got... It was a positive offseason for them in terms of offseason moves, the coaching thing, and all of the front office machinations, hiring Nico Harrison, who... Nico Harrison might be really good. You talk to people around basketball, they have a really high opinion of him. Um, But it's unproven at this point. Jason Kidd is like a significant downgrade over Rick Carlisle. I mean, a a ridiculous decision. Uh, Maybe Rick just wanted to leave, but don't hire Jason Kidd for God's sakes. Um, Yeah, I I would say that the offseason moves particularly, I would 
trend positive and anytime that you get Luke Doncic to sign on the dotted line for five more years it's a win but overall I think this could have been better and if I was a Dallas fan I would feel very feel like it was just unfortunate timing in terms of when they had their cap space and ability to make moves let's move to Houston the Houston Rockets did not do much this offseason this is going to be a quick discussion they drafted Jalen Green at number two, Alperin Shengun at number 16 after trading two, fu- two future first round picks for number 16. Drafted Usman Grub at number 23 and Josh Christopher at number 24. They signed Daniel Tice to a four year $36 million deal and they signed David Waba to a three year $15 million deal. All of this makes sense to me. They're completely rebuilding. Um, I think they did really, really well in the draft. I think they have a lot of reason to be excited about all four of the players they drafted. And that includes Josh Christopher, who I was not an enormous fan of pre-draft. He's going to have to shoot it at some point, but he looked pretty good at summer league, I thought, in terms of playing more within a team construct and playing uh, better defensively than what we saw at Arizona State. I really like Daniel Tice. I think he's a smart replacement for Kelly Olynyk, who they lost and was actually really effective for them late in the year. David Wobb is fine. It, it just is like what you do when you're rebuilding what Houston did. Right. And the only criticism I would give to Rafael Stone was if they could have traded Eric Gordon, I think I would have because, you know, Gordon's making roughly $19 million a year for another two years with a, a non-guaranteed final season. And so, yeah, if he could have, but I don't know that they could have. And, I mean, Gordon didn't have a chance to rehab his value after getting injured, so I'm not going to, you know, it's it's a small demerit just because they, uh, you know, if they could have done it, it would have been nice. But no, I, I think that part of what makes Houston's offseason so positive for them, um, Nate and I actually talked about this at length on Dunked On recently, we're doing our offseason grades of the West, is it can be hard for a French, for an organization to be, to choose to be bad and to extend that. And the Rockets aren't extending it. I mean, they're just at the beginning of that. It's not like we're there where the Thunder are. Yeah. But that is hard to do. And it's easier for Houston because they didn't have a lot of flexibility. They, um, you know, they didn't even use the mid-level exception, but they were over the cap. They used um, technically the Oladipo trade exception that they had to get to get Tice, so they still have the MLE. I don't think they're going to use it. Maybe they use part of it. I'm guessing they use part of it. But or like, maybe they use it midseason or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. And so, um, so like it was. It's easier to do to make that decision when you don't have the full tools at your disposal. But it is still the right path. And I mean, I thought they drafted well. You know these players better than I do, but I just saw them at summer league, and I thought Jalen Green looked ex- looked pretty much as I'd hoped. And Shangun was intriguing. And then Garuba, I barely saw because he was, you know, played in the Olympics. And then I still like Josh Christopher. I I basically, it's funny that I've seen a fair amount of Josh Christopher, but not the Arizona State Josh Christopher, because I watched him in some Team USA stuff and a little bit in high school and then in summer league. And like, what I like about Christopher, this is all I'll say, because you know him better than I do, is that he has at least the capacity to defend more than most of the, like, Guys who play selfishly, I'll put it that way. Like a lot of those guys, it's it's sort of correlation, not causation. But a lot of athletic players who who you know are selfish offensively just don't try defensively. And Christopher gets into guys sometimes, and I, I've always liked that about him. Yeah, no, I really was impressed with what I saw from Christopher. I also like the fact that he decided to pass. Like he made high level passing reads, not all the time, but sometimes. Yeah, like when he when he decided to make a concerted effort to pass the ball at Summer League, 
he was good at it. Uh, what did you think of Jalen Green? Because that's obviously like the, I, all of this is like superfluous if Jalen Green is bad. You know what I mean? What did you think? Of it that? is. Uh, I was very positive for me. I mean, he still has a lot of work to do. And Green, I, I think in certain ways, he's going to be perfect for the Rockets because it's going to take him time, but they're going to play him. So he, you know, defensively, of course, it's going to take a while. And then offensively, I think as much as like, uh, I think it was the Pistons flummoxed him a little bit by sending doubles and stuff like Josh, Chris, or sorry, Jalen Green isn't that guy yet. But yeah. if I were to if I were to say like kind of like my odds that he can be a primary creator in the league, I would say it actually ticked a little bit higher in summer league, and I like the film on him a lot. So I think Green can succeed at a high level in the NBA even without being a primary guy, like just because he's dangerous secondary scorer. If you give him an advantage, he's going to toast you like five different ways. And if he can be the guy who creates, you know, who can run the pick and roll, who can create in isolation, then. He's then you're starting to talk about potentially maybe on the fringes of all NBA, like or maybe even yeah. above that. And I think it's a possibility. I don't I don't think I'd go over fifty percent at the moment, but that is what makes him like to me, what makes him at this stage more intriguing than some of the other like high end two guard prospects that we've seen, like Beal and Booker. Now, Booker has developed a ton and he has he has improved dramatically. And remember, I'm comparing 19-year-old Josh Green with 19-year-old Booker, not 24-year-old Booker, whatever he is right now. Um, so oh, Jalen Green's way ahead of where Devin was at 19. Exactly. And so, yeah, so that's a that's a really good sign that is not definitive or dispositive necessarily, but it helps. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I agree. I, I agree with you that I thought Jalen struggled a little bit when faced with like blitzes on the ball and doubles and like struggled to navigate his way out of high pressure situations. But that's fine. He's going to figure it out. He's 19 playing in summer league for the first time. Uh, He was someone that throughout the G League bubble season really showed a capacity for learning and slowing things down and getting to his spots and knowing exactly uh, what he has to do. I think he's going to be fine. Uh, I think he's going to be a 20 plus point per game scorer. I agree with you that like the question is, is he more of like a high usage all-star level 25 point per game scorer or is he an all NBA like full on lead ball handler creator? I don't know that we have an answer to that yet necessarily, but I feel pretty good that the floor with Jalen Green as a scorer is really high. The other thing that we saw at Summer League, and then we can move on from Houston because this one's just going to be shorter. Uh, I really, really liked what I saw from Alperin Shangun as a rim protector defensively. I do worry that guys are just going to go over the top of him in the NBA yep. because he's six foot nine with a seven foot or six foot ten with a seven foot wingspan, but. I think that he showed enough to where he has really good timing. He has really good principle verticality. He knows where he needs to be. He knows how to set his position and set uh, a little bit outside of the circle, which makes it a little bit harder to finish for guys. Overall, I thought he did a really good job. Yeah, I thought he did too. I, I feel better about Shangun now than I did before the draft when I barely knew. You know, I, unfortunately, he was the guy I actually most wanted to watch film on, but there was a, a video issue with it, and so I wasn't able to. Okay, let's uh, take a quick commercial break, and then we'll move on to two teams connected by their offseason in Memphis and New Orleans. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. 
I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. Memphis and New Orleans. They, uh, they decided to swing a deal. We'll start with the Memphis side of it first. And break them down. Memphis traded Jonas Valanciunas, number 17, number 51, for Steven Adams, Eric Bledsoe, number 10, number 40, and a future first-round pick. Memphis then drafted Zaire Williams at number 10, and then they moved up from number 40 to draft Santi Aldama out of Loyola. They traded Grayson Allen for Sam Merrill in two second-round picks, and then they moved Eric Bledsoe uh, again for Patrick Beverly, Daniel Oturu, and Rajon Rondo. They now have 17 guaranteed contracts under roster. So there is another shoe to drop with Memphis. This offseason is not done for them. They also lost uh, Justice Winslow. Uh, they may have lost, uh, I believe they lost Gorgie Jang as well. Overall, a, a weird offseason from a team that is rising and made the playoffs, but I don't think it was a bad offseason necessarily. Where are you on what Memphis did? I don't think it was bad, but I also wonder about kind of what could have been in in terms of a few different parts of this. So the, the most interesting thing for me is basically the bet that 
it was a lot better to be at 10 than at 17, where they, you know, they took on long-term money in Steven Adams and Eric Bledsoe, one of which they've already gotten off. And I I think of Valanciunas. Valanciunas had a better 2020-21 than Steven Adams did. Now, whether you want to say there were, there were a lot of anomalous things for Adams in terms of like that weird defensive situation in New Orleans and yeah. playing with on a team with no spacing and all that type of stuff. Um, but so basically, I mean, they whatever, however you want to see that, and maybe it's partially Valanciunas didn't want us to take an extension. But so basically, the, the Grizzlies believed that being at 10 was better than being at 17. And they took Zaire Williams there and talented, talented, you know, forward length guy, skinny. Um, like he was skinnier than not skinnier than I thought, but like on the skinny side, and and so that's a bet. You know that is a that is that is a kind of a statement in and of itself, and uh, we'll have to see whether that's correct or not. You have a better read on it than I do. But what's weird to me about Memphis, and so there's their capacities were all a little bit weird, um, and so by kind of by doing that move, it, they took on a lot of money needed to be uh, needed to be with cap space because it was you know the salaries didn't match. And so then they didn't have the full mid level and all those other things. And it's like they they didn't they most certainly did not get worse. But would basically a targeted use of let's say the mid level exception to get somebody who can shoot, somebody who can kind of fit bridge gap in their rotation, would that have been a better use of their capital? And I think the answer to that really depends on Zaire Williams. So I'll be honest. I think they definitely got worse for this year. Now, whether or not that is worse long term, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I do think that it is dependent on Zaire Williams. And frankly, like, I think that I really liked them taking Zaire Williams. Now, on the draft front, I, I do think that they got a couple of guys taken out from under them that they kind of expected to. They expected, I think, one of Josh Giddy, Franz Wagner. Um, to be on the board. Like, I, I think that that's kind of what they were thinking would happen. Giddy goes six to Oklahoma City. Franz Wagner goes eight to Orlando. And Zaire Williams ends up going 10 because of that. I, I do think that if Giddy or Wagner were on the board, they were more likely to be taken by Memphis. Uh, they just kind of fit everything that Memphis looks for uh, analytically in terms of age profile. Now, I'll be honest, I personally would have taken Zaire Williams over both of those guys. Uh, I, I love the pick. I think it's exactly what Memphis needs if he hits. Uh, if he hits, he's going to be a legitimate shot creating six foot nine forward uh, that plays hard, can do some things defensively, makes reasonable passes. But he's a couple years away from that, I think. Like he might be able to play a few minutes here and there this season, just going in and like creating havoc and chaos and being athletic. But I liked I liked the pick at 10 for Zaire Williams. I, I thought it was reasonable. The reason I think they're worse, though, is that this was actually an offense that relied on Jonas Valanciunas to create offense at a way higher level than what I think people understand. He was their bailout option. Like, he was. John ja, ja Morant was not their bailout option offensively this year. Like, he would go and create occasionally. Like, if there were five seconds left on the shot clock and he had the ball... Okay, they would 
eventually get to him and he'd try and create something. And frankly, he would probably miss because he's just not that kind of isolation scorer yet. If there were like eight seconds left on the shot clock, though, they would try and run like a ball screen and then get uh, Jonas like sealed off in the paint. Or they would try and run like a post up with Jonas to get him uh, a reasonable look on the block because that was their most efficient source of late shot clock offense, I thought, last year. So they actually lost a in my opinion, the guy who was their best player last season. I thought Jonas Valanciunas was Memphis's best player in terms of offensive production, in terms of rebounding, in terms of rim protection. Uh, he kind of just did a lot for them. So I think it's actually a real downgrade to go from him to Steven Adams. Now, Steven Adams is better defensively, and they'll be a little bit better defensively this year, so that will help. But I really worry where the offense is going to come from this year a little bit from Memphis. I think it could come from Ja just taking another step forward. That would be my general kind of my general assumption. And I would say that Ja was more valuable to them than Valanciunas. I understand where your your approach, but just the amount that Ja had to create basically for everyone else. I think that that there's a lot of significance and a lot of value to that. But yeah. it's I mean, but but well, so I well in I like think, it, in that vein too. If, if John Morant doesn't take that next leap, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Sure. So, like, if you're building to try and win a title, you might as well bet on John Morant to take that leap because if he doesn't, the rest of the moves just don't mean anything. So the other weird thing, and I agree with you that it feels like this offseason is incomplete, is that Memphis now has a clear-cut point guard of the present, point guard of the future in John Morant. They also now have three credible point guards who can kind of some of which can kind of defend other positions that not only overlap with each other but aren't super necessary on this team and i would i don't know which of those three meaning tyus jones patrick beverly and rondo are desirable by other teams at their current wages like or when which of them are you know kind of in in different phases and how Mm -hmm. zach Kleiman in this front office is approaching it but it is, again, kind of a strange use of resources. We're not going to talk about Sacramento, but Sacramento having, I think it's five or six centers on their roster is another one of those. Like, okay, what are these guys doing? And they can all play, which is a general benefit. Like, they're all good basketball players. But are they the type that somebody's going to give you value for them? Like, they might learn the difference between having a wing like Andre Iguodala and having a, having a point guard. But I just don't know exactly where they're going with that. But the other kind of interesting part of this is Memphis has enough talent that having it be kind of misapportioned isn't as big a deal. Yeah, no, I I agree with you on that. They also now have actual wing depth in a way that makes sense. Uh, Kyle Anderson is a really good wing who can create shots. Desmond Bain looks really good at Summer League and was one of the best rookies in the NBA this year in terms of effectiveness. Uh, Dylan Brooks obviously is really, really useful. The guy that I like wonder about where this is going is Brandon Clark. He had a bit of a down second season after a great first season. I'm just kind of curious to see how they go about utilizing him because it's, it's a fascinating skill set. He's obviously incredibly athletic, really productive as a finisher inside has potential to shoot just didn't play well this year. And that's a real difference making piece for them. If he gets it back together, especially 
it was especially disappointing because of Jaron Jackson missing so much time. Like if yep. they, they had an opportunity for Clark, he wasn't just falling by the wayside because he didn't have the time. No, that was the opportunity for him to really make a dent. He didn't do it. Um, I'm excited to see what DeAnthony Melton can do again. I thought he was a deserving sixth man of the year contender, and he came on like over the course of the year. One other interesting thing to mention for them, and I think this ties in with Desmond Bain, just from a asset management resource perspective, basically dumping Grayson Allen is a very interesting decision. He was still on rookie scale yeah. contract. I can understand them not wanting to give him an extension and maybe worrying about losing him for nothing in 2022. Yeah, of course. Those are very reasonable possibilities. Maybe you didn't want to start him, but they, you know, they traded him for Sam Merrill. And mm-hmm. I don't even know if Sam Merrill is going to make this team. Um, Sam Merrill, who is a restricted free agent, because even if everything works out well, he's a restricted free agent next offseason. And so, like, I, he was the 60th pick less, less than a year ago. Yeah. And so I, I think I, I can understand, you know, the, the argument here is most likely taking the club out of the bag. You know, the idea that Taylor Jenkins would have played Grayson Allen too much. And so you'd rather not have him at all. And there, there's validity to that. Like, I think that, you know, as a practical consideration, I once talked about this years and years ago with, um, I believe that was Keith Smart and AC Law, um, where it's basically like, okay, if he's going to play this guy, you don't want him to play that guy, just trade him or cut him. Um, but I think that it's it's a weird it's a weird thing to do, especially because it wasn't like anything else in Memphis's offseason pushed them in that direction. And if that's the way they felt about it, I think if they had moved on that, my instinct is like, they can't have done worse because you can't have gotten less. So uh, I, I I think it was a weird move. I think that it fits of a piece with their offseason, though, because if you look at what their kind of moves were this offseason, it was to move the window out a bit further as opposed to try to focus on winning now. And what this deal is, is it moved the window out a bit further. They get a guy in Sam Merrill who I think is actually like kind of a like for like replacement for Grayson Allen in many ways. I really liked Sam Merrill pre-draft last year. I had him at like 35 on my board. I would imagine that Memphis also liked him given the way that they seem to have prioritized him here. He's a really, really good shooter, does very similar things to Grayson Allen on the court. And then they get two additional second round picks in that move. I think that, like you said, they're just moving the window out a bit further. Now, would I have tried to make this move for someone who has a bit more team control? I probably would have, but I think it was more just trying to of a piece with the rest of their offseason, push the window out a bit further as opposed to lock in guys now. Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay. The the last question here is just very obvious. Did this team get better? I don't think so. Um, yeah. I I think that the Adams for Valanciunas swap, I think it makes them, it makes them worse. Not dramatically so, and I think Adams can be better than he was. But worse and and this is just basically in terms of the talent in and out because passage of time will help the Grizzlies they're they're not as young because they have some guys like Kyle Anderson who are who aren't who aren't super young but generally speaking the passage of time is going to help them so I would say you know that part of it but that's not really how we're grading this no we're not grading it that way I would say that for next season, I don't expect this team to be a playoff team unless John Morant takes an enormous leap and Jaron Jackson takes a pretty big leap as well uh, very possible. But I think that I would list some teams in the West ahead of them right now in terms of widening out their lens and creating a brighter future for themselves. I do think they probably did that. 
at the end of the day. I think that they probably gave themselves a bit more flexibility long term and got a piece in Zaire Williams that I think particularly does fit really, really well with where this roster is constructed going forward. Let's go to the other side of that move now with the New Orleans Pelicans. They acquired Jonas Valanciunas, number 17 and number 51 for Steven Adams, Eric Bledsoe, and two first-round picks, essentially. The number number 10 pick and uh, a future first-round pick, as well as number 40. Within that same sign-and-trade deal, they finagled in Charlotte on their end and acquired Devontae Graham, essentially for a first-round pick in Wessawundu. In a separate sign-and-trade, they moved Lonzo Ball to Chicago for Tomas Sadoransky, Garrett Temple, and a second-round pick. With that number 17 pick, they drafted Trey Murphy, and then they signed Willie Hernan Gomez to a separate three-year deal. Uh, the only other one to note is that they finally inked terms with Josh Hart, three years, $38 million. Yes, they did. The Hart deal is interesting insofar as I think it makes sense for them. They can still clear out like a pretty reasonable amount of cap space next summer uh, if they decide to move on from Jonas and Sadoransky. But I did not like this offseason from New Orleans, really. I've gotten more lukewarm on it, which would be positive uh, compared to where I was as it was happening. I still think that they just kind of moved a lot of future value and assets uh, to only make themselves marginally better with the players that they acquired. Uh, and I have some pretty real questions about fit in particular with one guy that they acquired. So for the sake of this, let's take out Trey Murphy because he, uh, for, for what I'm just going to say, because he's kind of separate from all of this. But what what's so yeah. weird to me about what David Griffin did is if you believe a lot in the talent that you already have, and like that's my theory of the of the Pelicans offseason, is that David Griffin thinks Kyra Lewis and Nikhil Alexander Walker and maybe Josh Hart and some of these other guys like that 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 yep. didn't necessarily have huge roles that they can play and that they're going to take on large spots within the Pelicans and like. If by the right, way, like I, I partially awesome. agree with that uh, on the Nikhil Alexander Walker front particularly, and so I'm I'm. I'm a little bit more lukewarm. I, I'm open to the possibility, but I'm not sure. Like, I, I liked some of what I saw from Kyra Lewis last year and what I saw in Summer League, but do I think he's like a definite starting point guard now or in the future? I'm not quite there yet. I hope to be in two months. Like, that would be fantastic. Right. But I, I think that, okay, so let's take that as, let's let's for the sake of argument, let's take that as a given. You still use the resources that you have as a front office to put your team in the best place to succeed. And so for me, that is having some different looks offensively and defensively, bringing in players to plug some of the gaps. And I thought that Griffin basically just punted on all of that. Like, they brought in Sadoransky, they brought in Garrett Temple, two totally fine veterans, but not players that make sense with this timeline, not players that are going to... I don't think they intend for them to make a major difference. Like, I think that's kind of, in some ways, a part of why Griffin acquired them. They brought in... A center in Valanchunas, who, in like, I, I mean, I thought he was better than Adams last year, but I don't think that what he brought me- Memphis last year is directly applicable to New Orleans because he's playing with Zion and not Ja, and those guys are dramatically different basketball players. And yeah, can, can we can we talk about that fit first? Sure, because that's the one that I'm a little bit skeptical of. 
I thought that Jonas Valanciunas and Zion were probably two of the five best players in the NBA last season in terms of just bigs finishing at the basket. In terms of efficiency, in terms of being able to get a bucket out of post-ups, in terms of uh, being able to like roll and seal guys off and then just kind of jump over and elevate, or in Jonas's case, flick that little right-handed hook shot over the top. Uh, I thought those guys were two of the best at the rim in the NBA, and in part, they were two of the best at the rim in the NBA because of scheme and because of the way that they fit together on the court. I think Zion's going to be fine regardless of who you play next to him. Like they played him with Steven Adams quite a bit last year and there were two guys around the basket. And, regularly. and it's not, it's not like Jackson Hayes was spreading the floor either. <laughs> right. So th- Zion made it work. I really wonder if they're going to get the most out of Jonas Valanciunas and what his skill set is as like a guy that we just talked about with Memphis can score actually really, really well and create shots in the post really, really well and create shots out of pick and roll really well playing next to Zion Williamson, especially given that Zion struggles to shoot the ball in the way that he does. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge for Willie Green to kind of manage to manage all of that. And I enjoy that it is now a center that we can use for this. And incidentally, years ago, it was Brandon Ingram who ended up bearing it out to positively to some extent. So Valanciunas shot 37% on threes last year. He attempted 57 of them in 1,755 minutes. So yes, he shot well from three. He did not take enough of them to do that. And also, that's not what Valanciunas does best. You know, yeah. like you want him wrecking things, being an offensive rebounder and everything else. And so like, it's... Te- teams Teams would be fucking ecstatic if Jonas is out there just chucking threes. Exactly. But... Uh, to a certain extent, if you're depending on what you're intending as the primary action, like, yeah, if it's going to be Zion and Valanchunas, then you get into that. But I mean, part of what I love with Point Zion is using a smaller guy in the lineup and making it roll. And that's the other kind of for the smaller guy and, and everything that makes Griffin's bed of sorts so unusual is like, for example, if you think that your guys are good, we know that at least one team valued Lonzo Ball at the price that he got because they paid it to him. And so the the opportunity cost for New Orleans of matching on him, basically, okay, you keep Lonzo Ball. Yep. Then you lose Sadoransky and you lose Garrett Temple, two guys that I think are going to help them, but two guys that are going to help them, like, off the bench. Yep. And maybe then you use, you know, use the mid-level or you do something else. It's like, I, I can understand being a little bit reluctant to give him that money. I can understand, you know, and saying, like, okay, you're going to do it, but, like, the weirdest part for New Orleans moving forward is they could theoretically have cap space in 22. It's possible. But 23 is when Zion gets his big, big raise. And Brandon Ingram's already under contract. De- Devontae Graham's already under contract. That's when Nikhil Alexander-Walker is going to be on a new contract, whether it's extension or new, or new thing. So what is he afraid of Lonzo's contract for? Because yeah. they're not, they're not, sac- like, they're not... St- keeping their powder dry there isn't much powder left right. and it's i i i think that what it, it's such a weird decisions or series of decisions for the pelicans because if griffin is wrong it's going to be exceedingly hard for him to go in any other direction now yeah i mean they moved two future first round picks plus like significant draft draft capital in the 2021 nba draft in order to make these things happen that doesn't help your future flexibility. And on top of that, like exactly what you're saying with the cap sheets, right? Like I also think that if you decide to keep Lonzo, 
you probably don't make that Memphis deal because you're keeping Lonzo's cap hit or cap hold, I'm sorry, on the books. And then you're probably keeping Josh Hart's cap hold on the books. And and we should mention they're functioning, it looks like, as an over-the-cap team. So they were clearing money in that deal for no clear purpose. Yeah. And, which is which is also extremely well, weird. And Well, I'm sorry. The the clear purpose they're probably doing it for is to acquire Jonas Valanciunas. Like that yeah, that's really it, it the only purpose and, it can be. Well, and they offloaded money for twenty two twenty three, but I mean Griffin's the guy who signed Adams to the extension and they, they chose to acquire um Bledsoe in the Drew shenanigans and everything else like that. So like I don't I don't exactly know where they're going with this, but I will say Trey Murphy looks good in summer league. And if somebody like him hits, or if Nikhil Alexander Walker is better, you know, like he can step up, then a lot of these concerns will partially, if not fully, fall by the wayside. It's just that they haven't yet. Yeah. Uh, one other thing worth noting with New Orleans, I believe they created like a seventeen million dollar trade exception. They right? did seventeen point one. Yeah. So. That does give them another avenue over the course of the next oh. year to go out and make a move. Having can said I make that, a, can I make a little note on that? Um, well, yeah. Is it going to be? Uh, you that might they be, lose it. No. Yeah. Well, they lose it if they're going to use cap space. But it's the, yeah. It's the idea that so people often get really excited about trade exceptions because it's like oh, it can be anything. But remember what a trade exception actually is, and that is a way. It is a vessel to acquire a player, but it's a player who, in most circumstances, is under contract. And so what that means is. You, if it's a player who's good and under contract, you're probably going to have to give up something for that other team to sacrifice, to give them to you, to trade them to you. And if the player isn't good or is is overpaid, well, then you're getting something, but you're getting something a little bit different. So, I mean, it can work out well. I mean, Boston, I would say for the Gordon Hayward exception, they got Fournier in what ended up being a rental, and then they got Josh Richardson. Like, so that's, you know, they got players who could actually help. But the trade exceptions are hard to... They're hard to maximize unless you have draft capital. And Griffin has draft capital, yep. but he would have to probably throw it in because if it's like basically any player that's $17 million or less that you would want to get is not going to be free. Yeah, and they move two of their future <clears throat> draft capital picks in order to open that. And one thing that I was you know, kind of thinking that you were going to mention is if they do decide to open up cap space and they don't use that trade exception this off or this uh, during this season, they then lose that trade exception in order to open up cap space because trade exceptions, I believe, count against the cap, right? They do. Yeah. So, in terms of like cap holds and everything, whenever you're trying to use free agency space, so it's not like they can carry this trade exception into next off season and hope to make a move early in the off season and have cap space. Like that's just not the way it works. So yeah, it's it does one or, give it's them one or the other. Yeah, it does give them, I guess, like a little bit of optionality in terms of, you know, you could make a trade, but if you're opening up cap space, you can just make the trade into cap space anyway. So it, it does give them a little bit more optionality, but it only really gives them optionality if they can re-sign Jonas. And I'm interested to see if the Jonas thing works because I think he's a great player. Like I said, like I thought that he was every bit as good as Demonis Sabonis was this year in terms of what he actually brought on the defensive end of the court as well, because he's just a much better defender than what Sabonis is. I just I just don't know if it's going to work in the same way that it worked for him in Memphis as it does in New Orleans, given that he doesn't have that elite guard playing next to him who can create shots for him, and he has another guy taking up space inside. Did New Orleans get better or worse 
this offseason, Danny? I think they got worse because do, they don't what, have as many. Before we they even jump they, into this, do we want to talk about Devontae Graham? I mean, I think I think Graham's best profiles is a backup guard and a yeah. useful one. And he's getting backup guard money, which is fine. Um, he, I wonder how he's going to fit next to Zion because like, Graham's biggest limitation has been finishing around the basket. And... There aren't going to be many places for... I mean, I guess in transition and stuff, maybe there could be some stuff open, but he can hit shots, and he's fine. I think he's I think he's a fine fit. But, like, so the the two kind of the big nets, I think you could say, for them, for the for the, for the Pels, are Valanciunas for Adams, which I agree with you is an upgrade, uh, but I think it's less of an... Up, incidentally, I think it's less of an upgrade for the Pelicans than it is a downgrade for the Grizz. And then, let's agree say, roughly, that. Lonzo Ball for... Devontae Graham, though they're not going to play the same role, my expectation is that Kyra Lewis is going to elevate and Devontae Graham is going to, going to kind of take a smaller role. And that's a, that is, to me, a more significant downgrade. I, I'm not the biggest, I'm not as big on Alonzo, for example, as you and Seth Partnow are, but I'm still positive on him. I think he's a good player. And I think part of it, you know, you don't always want to rely on contract values as the calibrator of who's actually good or not. But like Devontae Graham, in a relative, they were both restricted for agents. Devontae Graham got 12 million a year and Alonzo Ball got 20. Yeah, I think I would rather pay Lonzo 20 than Devontae 12. Uh, they also obviously get Tomas Sadoransky and Garrett Temple. And sure. I think that both of those guys can be like useful bench players. Like they'll be like New Orleans seventh and eighth men this year, I would say. Yeah, uh, and, they'll, and they'll help. And having yeah. having that stability in the rotation is is very good. That also means that Trey Murphy is put in a better situation because he only, he'll probably only play significantly if he's doing really well. And that's... Yep. That's what you want for a for a young guy in a lot of circumstances, especially if they're kind of more in a complementary role. Is get the opportunity, make the most of it, and if you don't, then you're not you're not getting out out there getting crushed every night. Which yeah, I don't and, think is going to happen to him anyway. Yeah, and look, Trey Murphy, I think has looked phenomenal at summer league. Yeah, I agree. He, he's looked absolutely great. I think Najee Marshall has looked really good at summer league as well. I would expect him to really get some substantial minutes this year as well. Uh, I did not. They re-signed Didi Lozada. I'm not really a Didi guy. Uh, I've never totally gotten that. They re-signed Willie Ernan Gomez. Uh, you know, depth inside. That's great. Although another post big, which is interesting, next to uh, Zion Williamson. Yeah, look, I think this team is probably better next season than they were this season. But I think it's going to be more of a function, not of the machinations of the front office, but of just guys getting better. Brandon Ingram will get better. Zion will obviously get better. Nikhil Alexander-Walker will get better. You know, whatever happens with Jackson Hayes, uh, you know, just mentioning uh, the fact that he seems to have a potential court case at some point in the future, given uh, that he was arrested. Uh, What was that, two weeks ago? Something like that, yeah. So, you know, those guys, if, you know, Jackson Hayes, playing uh kyra lewis obviously will get better as well trey murphy i think is a really good addition and Najee marshall will get better i think they're going to show internal development and growth and they're going to win more games next season uh or a higher percentage of their games because of that but i don't think it's going to be because of what the front office did i think the front office probably hamstrung them more going forward in the off uh with this off season Let's get to the Spurs. It's an interesting yeah. 
Let's get to the Spurs. So they signed and traded DeMar DeRozan to Chicago for Thad Young, Al Farouk Amino, a first round pick and two second round picks. They signed Zach Collins to what is essentially what I'm going to call a tiered contract. Uh, they gave him one guaranteed year at 7.5 million, a partial guarantee in 2022-23 at 3.6 million, which the full price of it is right around like 7.5 or so again. And then the last year is fully non-guaranteed at right around 7.5 as well. So it's a full 322 deal, but they can get out of it very easily after one year if Zach Collins can't stay healthy. Uh, they signed Doug McDermott to a three-year $42 million deal. The last year, I believe, is a team option there, Danny? Uh, I have it as fully guaranteed. Fully guaranteed? Okay, never mind. Uh they acquired Chandler Hutchison for Nikola Militinov's rights. They signed Jock Lawndale for two years. They signed Bryn Forbes. Uh, they lost Patty Mills and Trey Lyles. And they drafted Josh Primo and Joe Wieskamp. Actually, kind of a lot of machinations here. What did you think of San Antonio's offseason? I was very impressed with the DeMar DeRozan part of this because DeRozan got, you know, he, he got a lot from the Bulls and the Spurs got a lot for facilitating, you know, for for doing that as a sign in trade, and Thaddeus Young is going to help them. And he, you know, I, I think Thaddeus Young was an underappreciated part of the Bulls last year, and the defense that he provided at times, the playmaking that he provided was very was very good for them. And Aminu, yeah, he's more kind of filler salary than anything else, but you know, who knows? Maybe he gets a spot in the rotation. And McDermott is fascinating because I think that he's kind of overstretched if you want to use the kind of the example of the Peter principle where it's like he's put into a role that he's probably not going to succeed but I don't know that the Spurs necessarily want him to you know like the idea basically being that part of what San Antonio I think was looking for in that fourth perimeter starter so if you assume DeJounte Murray Derek White and Keldon Johnson are three of the four perimeter starters presumably with Jakob Pertl as the fifth what you want in that other spot is somebody who can space the floor, who can ideally give you some additional looks, and, you know, ideally they can defend competently. And and part of why you want to do that is so that they can kind of keep everything else moving and that they're, you know, they're drawing attention, they're making life easier on the other guys. And I think Doug McDermott does that. I think that he is, you know, he, he can be a decent movement shooter. He can, he's okay defending in a team concept. And he's overextended as a starting starting probably small forward is the way you would calibrate it. But I don't think the Spurs particularly care about that. Like, they'll be fine. They'll be a decent team this coming year. I think Pop is still a very good coach. And so there, I think what helps about this is that I think it, their roster makes more sense. And one of the weirdest things about San Antonio the last couple of years is that they needed a lot from DeMar DeRozan. And he delivered better than I ever would have anticipated. Deserves immense credit for that. But the hope for San Antonio is that they don't need that anymore because this year they can get a healthy enough Derek White that they don't need as much playmaking from a third player. So it'll be more the White Murray show with some, hopefully, some Lonnie Walker, some Trey Jones. You can work it a couple different ways. Yeah, the it is going to be really interesting to see what DeMar DeRozan's true value is. Uh, I think it's going to be more, we're going to find out how good DeMar DeRozan is based off of what San Antonio looks like, as opposed to what Chicago looks like this year. Because I think there is a chance that San Antonio falls off a bit of a cliff. I don't know that they will, but I think there's a chance that, that happens if some of those younger guys like Derek White, like DeJounte Murray, like Lonnie Walker, like Trey Jones 
don't step into that high usage role that DeMar DeRozan has stepped into uh, over the course of the last couple of years. And it's also going to tell us how valuable is DeMar DeRozan, how valuable is his shot creation ability when replacing him for a true floor spacer and Doug McDermott. Like, it's honestly going to be like kind of an interesting basketball experiment this year in terms of what is valuable on the court. I think we're going to learn a lot about how good Doug or how good DeMar DeRozan is based off of how good San Antonio is this year. Because, like, I'll be honest with you, I am like, I really like Derek White. I don't like Derek White as like a number two option. I, I like DeJounte Murray enough, I guess. I, I don't know that I trust DeJounte Murray moving into like a primary-ish option, which is what they kind of need him to be right now. So I, I'm I'm skeptical of the way this is going to look this year. I got to be honest. I think that con- concerns about the offense are well-founded. I think that the, it's they're going to have to find a new dynamic and – Sort of like we just talked about with New Orleans, the the be, the chance of success for San Antonio here is really every guy stepping up to the level that they need to, and potentially even some guys really expanding their profile. That could be Keldon. That could also be Dejounte Murray and Derek White taking real steps forward. White had such a lost year last year, which is disappointment. But I think their defense is going to be interesting. So, like first yeah. of all, Pop is a great defensive coach. They Pirtle Pirtle was like in my contention for the ballot for defensive player of the year. I think he was one of the seven to you know seven to three most valuable defensive players in the NBA last year, which is incredible. But San Antonio, you know, they run this specific scheme. Teams did not do well around the basket with them. I thought that that you know Pirtle did a great job there. And San Antonio, they were thirteenth in defense last year using clean the glasses version and they did not have they had actually i would argue negative opponent shooting luck you know team shot well yeah. from mid-range team shot well from three against them and so if they you know so like if their defense they were 13th last year if it's i don't know like eighth or 10th something in that range they can take a modest downgrade offensively and still be like well better than the dregs like be in contention for the play-in and i think that san antonio um also, they had like a, such a weird kind of go of it last year with the way the schedule worked and everything else. Like, yeah, I'm very interested in what this team is and what they look like. And also, I, I mean, where where they want to go from here is is also a weird question, an interesting question. Yeah, I'm going to be really interested to see how they utilize that like four and five spot now because they often use Demar as the four man. Uh, late yeah, because he can't he can't defend everybody, so you might as well have him defend force. Right. So, and like, honestly, I think he does better kind of bodying up and playing with like physicality as defensively as opposed to uh, having to slide and like, you know, read crazy off ball actions with wings and things like that. So I think DeMar made sense more at the four. What I guess that they probably play Doug McDermott at the four this year. And then well, I think what you like do is you just put you put Kelton Johnson on whichever forward is better. Yeah. So however, however you don't want to define the lines. Do we do we like that? I, I'm a little bit worried about that. I think Keldon's mm-hmm. great, but like, like I think he's a really good young player. But I, I'm worried about that defensively. Actually, I, I think it's fine on a team that's not trying to win the championship this year. I mean, give him give him the reps, and if if it doesn't work super well, then you can go in a different direction. And San Antonio, like even though they took on money with McDermott. And they still have the question marks in terms of what they're going to eventually pay Lonnie Walker and Zach Collins as that partial guarantee. Like they can spend next year still. Yep. And 
I don't know if they will, and like maybe that's when they start to you know go in a different direction, at least partially. And they there are a lot of different ways that that San Antonio could do that, but I think it's totally. I, I mean, to me, what I what I liked the most in many ways about San Antonio's offseason was it was a more clear understanding of just where they are and not freaking out and. It hurts to see Patty Mills go somewhere for the tax pyramid level, but and and then I mean maybe Trey Jones can step into that, and he's kind of going to have to because the guard rotation is going to be. They have a lot of guys, and I, I think that depending on how they want to play Vassell, they can move things around and you know have one of White and Murray if they want to go that route. They could do, but also Trey looked very good in summer league. Yeah. So yeah, they, they like, have a lot of perimeter players like yeah, Dejounte so Murray, answer- Derek White, Kelton Johnson, Devin Vassell. Trey Jones, uh, Lonnie Walker, uh, and this is not even counting Josh Primo and Joe sure. Wieskamp, both of whom I think are going to be in Austin for most of the year. Uh, they have a lot of perimeter guys, and they can kind of swing it around and make it work. And by the way, like they lose Rudy Gay as well, and they did. Rudy Gay played a substantial amount of minutes at the four for them last year too. Yeah, and th- so to answer the the last question for these guys, they got worse, but I don't think they got worse in a way that is a problem. They got worse in the way that teams like them probably should. Yeah, agree. Uh, the problem that I'm struggling with with San Antonio is just what are they building toward? Exactly. And, like, I mean, part of this, and, I mean, I love Greg Popovich as as a coach. I think that he, um, he has been so huge for the franchise, is we talk a lot about, like, a team wanting to keep things, keep the band together for a player, or like, oh, you know, it's the, the golden years for Dirk or for something else. My theory of the case is that's kind of what the Spurs have done with Pop, that they didn't want to all the way bottom out, kept some of these vets, and they've been relevant. You know, like, they've been they've been in the mix a fair amount the last couple of years, even if it hasn't led to, you know, like, playoff series wins and everything else like that. And so... That is probably like you know the downside of it is that is that they're they're not building because I think a lot of their players they're maybe in a sort of similar situation to where the Orlando Magic were a few years ago where a lot of their players would make so much more sense if they had one person to put at the top of the pecking order and push everyone down a little bit like if you could put somebody who was meaningfully better than Dejounte and Derek White and Pirtle on this team all of a sudden you're like okay this is a team that could. That I think would be a more reliable playoff team that could maybe even host a series depending on if they were healthy. But getting that player from where they are is really hard. It's really, really, really hard. And it, I respect the fact that they're not bottoming out. I wonder if it happens this year just kind of organically, just because their offense isn't good enough to make it work. I mean, just look at who they're behind in the pecking order in the West, right? Got Utah. Phoenix, the Lakers for sure. I would say Golden State for sure. Denver for sure. Portland for sure. Dallas for sure. That's seven teams. Clippers, I would say they're still behind because the Clippers still have Paul George and they should be better than the San Antonio team, even without Kawhi Leonard. So that's eight. I kind of think Minnesota has more upside than they do. Uh, I know that they'd have to make up a 10-game difference, which is large and substantial, Um, but that would be nine. And then we've got the Kings, who are right in their ballpark. We've got the Pelicans, who are right in their ballpark. And then we've got Memphis, who are right in their ballpark. So, I mean, there's a chance this team finishes like 13th in the West this year and wins the same amount of games over an 82-game season. And there's also a chance that if they're out of it, you know, if, if the if the top of the West or maybe even not the top, the middle of the West looks as strong as we think it might, 
then maybe they become a team kind of like what Toronto did this year, where they see the writing on the wall, they give a lot more time to Josh Primo and some of these other players, de-emphasize vets, and maybe give some tactical rest to their better players, and then they end up kind of getting getting the benefits of being towards the bottom without intending to. See, here, here's what I'm worried about, though. There's a chance that this could end up looking more like what happened with Orlando than sure. like Toronto, just because they have DeJounte Murray. DeJounte Murray is like in a similar ballpark, let's say, to what Aaron Gordon is and in a similar no man's landy kind of space, right? Because they have Murray. He's here. Uh, he is good for sure. He's not the guy, I don't think. I think we both agree on that, right? Like, he's not going to be some, you know, all-star level point guard, right? Yeah, I, 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 I'm in that in that ballpark. I agree. But they just drafted Josh Primo. They have all of these other guys, Lonnie Walker, Devin Vassell, um, you know, Derek White exists, Kelton Johnson, obviously. And all of these guys can play multiple positions. Uh, Trey Jones is another one. Like, But it, it just feels like they're kind of... For right now, at least, it feels like they're kind of just, you know, turning the screws a little bit and, you know, not not really building toward something. And, and that's that's frustrating. It's, it's hard to build toward something whenever you don't have the guy. And I understand and respect what San Antonio is doing on some level from a competitive standpoint. But it, they're just in a weird space. And it's hard to kind of overcome that, I think. San Antonio, did they get better? Or did they get worse this offseason? Oh, they got worse. But that's okay. I'd say it's good. I would say they got worse. And I just don't know where they're going at this point. Danny, uh, let's move on and tell the people where they can find your work. You can listen to Dunked On. We have both Dunked On public episodes once a week and then Dunked On Prime, which is our subscription service. Um, Nate and I are still, you know, we're still doing all the transactions and off-season grades and all that fun stuff. Regrades from the 2020 off-season, which is, you know, it's actually less than a year since we did those because this has been a weird year. Uh, also, Real GM Radio, which Sam is a frequent guest on, and my writing is at, at The Athletic, including a lot of pieces with the host of the Game Theory Podcast, Samuel Cassini. Oh, Danny LaRue. Just an absolute joy to talk to. Danny will be back at some point, either this week or next week, to talk about the Southeast Division. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back next week or at later this week with more. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.